This episode of The Code is brought to you by MoveMate, the award-winning active standing board that makes the perfect companion to your computer workstation. This is Dr. Andrew Fix, physical therapist and host of The Code. I can't recommend this product enough. Since I started using it, I notice I'm more focused during meetings, less uncomfortable while working on the computer, and simply more productive. Not to mention, the small activity you get while using it is great for your body and sure beats sitting in a chair the whole day. Do yourself a favor and order yours today. Visit www.letsmovemate.com slash Dr. Andrew Fix. While you're there, use promo code DRA15 to take 15% off the price. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to The Code, your guide to health and human performance. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Fix from Physio Room, a performance-based rehab facility here in Denver. On this podcast, we're going to explore the key areas of your life that impact your overall health and wellness, from sleep hygiene and stress management to nutrition, movement, relationships, and more. We bring you conversations with industry experts and top performers to share strategies they have for cracking the code on health and human performance. Now let's get to today's show. What's going on, guys? Dr. Andrew Fix back here for another episode on the code. Standing inside the treatment room today here in our Denver Tech Center clinic location. Haven't done one here in a while. Thank you for tuning in and joining us. Uh, however, you're listening to this podcast. Really appreciate you spending your time with us. And uh, by with us, I mean, we are joined again today by Dr. Nate Henry. He's one of our providers here at Physio Room. He's been with our team for over a year, uh, slowly closing in on a year and a half now. And uh, he actually joined us in the past. Nate was on episode number 71 of this podcast, where we talked about all things dry needling related and went into a real big uh, background of Nate's extensive uh, education and, and knowledge, which is why we're we love having them on here. Love having them on our team. So, Nate, thanks so much for joining me again this afternoon, man. Appreciate your time. Hey, man, this is fun for me. So, I'm looking forward to it. Also, awesome. Well, what we're going to get into today, you guys, the topic of spinal manipulations, or you know, sometimes I don't like to use this word, but cracking the back. Right? Sometimes clients just come in and they ask us. Andrew, can you crack my back today? And uh, what they mean is, can you manipulate my spine? And Nate happens to be an expert in spinal manipulations, and he actually teaches uh, continuing education courses on this very topic all across the country to all different types of physical therapists and other types of providers. So, um, Nate, can you do a little bit more of a introduction and back, brief background on yourself and how you how did you get into teaching spinal manipulation courses? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about my education at the last episode, but uh, I graduated from the Army Baylor Physical Therapy Program in 2010. And as a provider coming out of Army Baylor, you're expected to go to an Army unit, uh, usually consisting of somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 soldiers, and you're going to be the sole musculoskeletal provider for them. So during school, uh, they spent a lot of time teaching us manual therapy. Um, and that included manipulations. In fact, some of the studies, the, the premier studies that you see on manipulation come out of that program. And, uh, and so they taught us how to, how to manipulate and mobilize pretty much every joint in the body. Um, we learned, of course, spinal manipulation as well. Uh, I do remember that once it got time to address the upper cervical spine, they pretty much shied away from teaching us that and 
mm-hmm. and uh, and cited some some uh, concerns with safety for that area of the spine. Um, and uh, after I graduated, I you know went into the army, treated a whole bunch of soldiers and soldiers' families with the the modalities that I learned in physical therapy school to include spinal manipulation. But uh, all during that practice, I did kind of shy away from treating the upper cervical spine. Uh, Six years later, 2016, I went through fellowship training, manual therapy fellowship training. And there where we looked at the actual evidence, um, all of the randomized control trials, many, uh, these are good ones, cadaver studies, like what kind of forces are being put through the spine when you manipulate it. Uh, come to find out, there if if screened correctly and applied correctly, it's actually a very safe thing to do. And yeah. so I um, I learned how to apply those techniques. And uh, after doing that for a while, I got tapped to start teaching other people how to do it. And so I've been teaching others how to do it since 2017. And it ranges from all types of practitioners. On our courses, we'll have mostly physical therapists, you know, but we'll get some chiropractors on our courses. Uh, We will have uh, osteopathic docs. You know, they learn a little bit of manipulation in school, and then they don't really seem to apply it much in practice. So after they get out of school, they're like, I want to hone these skills. They'll come and see us. Um, I've had PAs on the course, uh, occupational therapists. Um, even had some acupuncturists and at one point mm. veterinarian veterinarian on the course. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Um, that's uh, those are, those are the practitioners that we teach, you know, um, and I'll, I'll teach upwards of uh, 50 to a hundred practitioners a year. Uh, yeah. How to manipulate every level of the spine. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I kind of like that we're, you know, diving right into it. And I think one of the key things that you said was, you know, though you went to a program for schooling that that did do a lot of teaching of manipulations and mobilizations, a lot of your education of like really diving into the research, really honing your skills and really getting good at it, especially good enough to teach other people. A lot of that happened after school. And that was my experience, too. Right. I graduated from physical therapy program in 2015 and we learned some techniques Our our um orthopedics class provider, he maintained kind of like a, a private practice of his own where he would treat clients kind of in this cash pay scenario, similar to the way that we operate on the side while he was uh, while he was one of our instructors in school. Yeah. And what I remember was we sort of went through techniques of how to manipulate the lumbar spine and the thoracic spine, uh, maybe the ankle, for example. But when it came to the cervical spine, we didn't do that in class, right? We, because our class had like 50 people in it. So they didn't want to do that in lab. He pretty much said, Hey, I'll have office hours set aside specifically for like small groups to come in. If three or four or five of you guys want to come in at one time where we can go over the cervical spine, we'll do that. And I think like you alluded to a lot of that was because of, you know, the belief that I think is out there of that manipulating or cracking the neck is dangerous. Right. And you started to talk about what some of the research says. So, you know, maybe as as far as like an overarching theme, like what does the research say in terms of safety of doing manipulations? And then maybe we'll go down the rabbit hole of getting into the conversation of, you know, what's the difference between a spinal manipulation compared to a chiropractic adjustment or, or something else? But but what is what does it say about safety as far as manipulations go for low back, for the mid back, the neck? 
um, in the research. Yeah. Um, well, if we want to dive into specific articles, we might be better off, you know, talking offline because <laughs> they get they get very specific, and uh, and so it, it just depends on what aspect of it you're concerned about. Mm-hmm. As far as as far as global recommendations or, or global things to understand, um, complications from spinal manipulation are are actually quite rare. Uh, some research sites, one in 50,000, and those are for some minor complications. Uh, for major complications, we're talking like, you know, causing a fracture or, or causing a disc herniation or um, causing a, a vertebral arterial dissection. Those are kind of, you know, catastrophic things and are reported somewhere between one in four million and one in six million. So the substantially... Uh, low risk. Um, comparatively, if we look at something like, I don't know, ibuprofen, <laughs> the uh, uh, how many people are on ibuprofen, how many of our patients are on ibuprofen have been yeah. for weeks or months at a time. And, and complications from ibuprofen range anywhere from one in 20,000 to one in 40,000. So, uh, and, and that's, that's including, you know, um, gastrointestinal distress all the way up to and including death. So, yeah, the uh, um, the complications from and I and I don't mean to say you know over, overstate uh, the the uh, danger of ibuprofen or understate the danger of manipulation, but they're really not in the same category. Yeah. Um, really, complications from ibuprofen are at least I don't know three times as many as from the minor complications that come from spinal manipulation. Got so it. all of that to say, um, it's it's a pretty safe thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now, we want to screen appropriately for our patients. And the primary things that we want to screen for are their vital signs, um, their history of trauma, and uh, any signs of stroke. As, as we learn in school, those are the five Ds, three Ns, and one A, right? You remember that acronym? Yeah. And, um, so if we if we can screen for those three things, most people are going to be safe for manipulation at that point. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And so now that we talked about like, you know, what um, the unlikely scenario that something a negative traumatic event like that happens. Um, since we're talking about a, a podcast here on manipulation, before we start talking about like the differences of this and that versus adjustment, like. We do it in the clinic, right? At least in a clinic like ours at Physio Room. All of our providers are doing manipulations with their clients, most likely on a daily basis, unless they've screened them and they determine they're not a good candidate for it. Um, What are the benefits of doing spinal manipulation? Why would we even do it in the first place? Because a lot of providers take these con ed courses that you teach. A lot of providers do it with their clients. A lot of clients seek it out, seek out someone that can do it. Why? What? What? can we expect are some of the benefits of doing it in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the benefits are, are quite a few, but uh, I like to distill it down to three basic things. So number one, when we manipulate someone, uh, manipulate someone's joint, be it the spine or, or an extremity, um, we're looking for an improvement in range of motion. So 
typically when we think of improvement, we think an increase. Hey, we're going to increase the range of motion. And in some cases, that's that's true. Somebody that doesn't move too well, you know, we can get them moving further or farther. But that's not, when we say improvement of range of motion, there's a second part to that. And that is the quality of movement. So yeah. let's say we ask somebody to bend over and touch their toes. Um, someone might move towards touching their toes quite smoothly and they can touch them right away. Well, maybe that person doesn't need a manipulation, but you might have someone else who they can, they can do it. They can bend over and they can touch their toes, but man, it looks nasty getting there. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like they don't move that well. Yeah. And so when we talk about improving range of motion, yeah, we can increase it, but also we want to consider, Hey, that, that we may just be improving the quality of the movement. Right. And again, that's not just for the spine. That's for any joint. So that's number one. We're going to improve range of motion. Number two is there is a connection between how a joint moves and how the musculature associated with that joint operates. And we can get into bit, you know, details about stiff muscles or muscles that have trigger points in them. But really what it comes down to is when we manipulate the joint that's associated with that muscle, we can get that overactive muscle to calm down. Mm. This has been demonstrated in studies, including electromyographic studies, where they measure the electrical impulses in the muscle and see them calm down with the use of spinal manipulation. Mm. And then uh, lastly, we can actually, we can affect the central nervous system as well. And the the explanation on that can be a little bit complicated, more than happy to discuss it. It just might bore some people, but <laughs> uh, suffice it to say our, our, our spine, our nervous system gets very good at doing what it repetitively does. And that includes feeling pain. So if we have some, something causing pain, and that happens for several days or weeks or months in a row, our spinal cord learns how to relay those pain signals really well. Yeah. And when we manipulate the spine, when we manipulate the peripheral joints as well, it gives input to the spinal cord and eventually to the cortex that says, hey, all of, you, all of these neurons that are like turned on to relay pain, it tells them to calm down. Mm-hmm. Now, um, all of these uh, benefits can happen with one manipulation. It does tend to be cumulative. And most studies that measure how, how many treatments are required to have an effect, most studies it lands somewhere between six and 12 treatments. You know, So um, now I've had plenty of patients that's like one and done. Hey, we do this one time and they're good for a long time. You know? uh, most people are more like uh, six, seven, maybe 10 uh, manipulations before that, before that. Yeah. Happens. We, and we also find the last thing I'll say, and we can talk about this a little bit more is, um, um, in, in general, it should be part of a plan of care, not the only thing in the mm. plan of care. It, it tends to be complementary with multiple other parts of a plan of care, specifically exercise, which is, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that we're absolutely expert at at physio. Yeah. Yeah. So on that train of thought, uh, being a component of the plan of care, you know, we operate under this three-step process principle called reset, restore, reload here at physio room, uh, spinal manipulation would fall nicely under that category of a reset. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And it can be used, it can be used in the in the restore phase also. It can be used in the reload phase also, but it is terrific for the reset phase where we're trying to give some input to the nervous system, calm down the muscles, and getting the joints moving a little bit better. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that explanation of you know, your, your spinal cord, your other nervous system tracks get really good at what they do a lot of. And if we're sending so many pain signals over and over and over, they get really good. Your body gets really good at feeling that pain. Um, and we can break that cycle a little bit, break that, um, effect with the input we're giving through something like this. So Nate, how does that work from, from like a, a downflow effect the other way where like if we manipulate somebody's back, for example, in the clinic and say this is a, let's use the, the client example of a high school female cross country runner who has knee pain. She doesn't have back pain, right? She has knee pain and she's coming into the clinic and we determine, hey, if we could just get your hip functioning better, we likely can improve your knee pain. If we can get the muscles around your hip, controlling your gait, controlling your movement better, we could likely improve your knee pain. What would the potential benefit of doing a spinal manipulation in somebody like that be where, where those nerves that innervate those muscles come from the lower back in the SI area? Um, why might we manipulate that person? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a classic example, actually. Um, yeah. Someone with some knee pain or lower extremity pain, and really, uh, all three things that we mentioned that manipulation does might might be involved with that. So um, the knee joint, you know, anytime we get pain in the knee joint, we should absolutely look above and below because the knee joint is it's just a bridge between the the multi-directional articulating hip and the multi-directional articulating ankle, whereas the knee is you know, it's pretty much a hinge joint and a tiny bit of rotation to it, but it's largely, it's just a translation. So as yeah. soon as we see that knee pain, let's look up at the hip, as you mentioned, and you can't look at the hips without looking at the spine, man. So um, all, all three things are going to be at play there. If we manipulate their lower back, we're going to improve their range of motion. And actually, we should probably involve some manipulation of their femoral acetabular joint, their hip joint as well. Yeah. And get those both. And, and we might even consider the sacroiliac joint, the SI joint. Um, one, th you know, one thing that I meant to mention is that uh, when we manipulate somebody, one thing that we are not doing is, quote unquote, putting their joints back in place. Joints at most will move about two millimeters, right? Mm -hmm. we manipulate them. That includes the spine or the knee or the hip, wherever we're going to do the manipulation. So um, now, now it feels like it absolutely feels like it's in a better spot. It feels like it's back in place, right? And that's when when we manipulate the spine or manipulate the hip. That's how that athlete, that high school runner, is going to feel. They're going to feel like, wow, this this feels like I can move. A little bit better, mm -hmm. maybe even a lot better, you know? Yeah. And then we've, we've calmed down the musculature in the lumbar spine, as well as around the hip. I mean, how much are the hip flexors and the gluteal muscles involved with running? That's uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, if that athlete's been dealing with this injury for a long time, um, we're absolutely giving input to the central nervous system to say, Hey, you, you don't need to be relaying these, this pain quite so much. Yeah. Say in that scenario, you know, that's that's a again classic example. All three things are at play with that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And 
you know, since you brought re brought up that topic um, on, you know, we're not putting things back in place, right? We're we're creating a stimulus to that joint, to the nerves, providing the body with some input. What is the difference between, you know, what in a chiropractic office might be called a adjustment and adjustment compared to in our office is typically called a spinal manipulation or some other joint manipulation. Yeah. Well, um, that's, that's where we're probably going to get into some semantics of what the word manipulation means. Mm -hmm. Um, And what uh, I think the the best way to define manipulation is, is what makes it different than other things, because, you know, we have joint mobilization, and you know what that means as a therapist. And some of right. our patients might know what that means. That means, hey, we're going to put hands on this joint. We're going to move it back and forth nice and slow 30 times. And then we're going to rest. And then we're going to do it again. We're going to do that, you know, two or three or four times. Right. It's going to be a mobilization of the joint. A manipulation is going to be, and it's going to be different than that. And probably the three criteria for manipulation is, number one, it's going to be very fast. And uh, it needs to be faster than human reaction time. Human reaction time is about 0.2 seconds. So it's got to be faster than that. Um, Number two, there needs to be a decent amount of force. Uh, Don't like to use, you know, we don't want to force joints to do things. But but in terms of force, you've got the the speed and a little bit of force going through. Mm -hmm. And then number three, and there's quite a bit of debate about this, but um, there needs to be a, a cavitation a pop and uh and i that's going to make some practitioners really mad they're going to duke it out with me but um there there's some decent evidence to show that the cavitation is important and uh and that um there is a difference for the patient when they hear that audible pop Mm -hmm. no matter which joint it's in yeah so those those three things um are probably what define best a manipulation. The fourth Mm -hmm. thing that I would add to that is that um, in terms of what we do, what we teach at physio room, how we operate at physio room, we do all of our manipulations in mid range. We don't take joints to end range and then past that. Right. Um, Call that paraphysiological range. We don't want to go past normal physiological range. And so that might be a difference than what you what you may see from other practitioners. Um, and as far as defining the difference between manipulation and adjustment, uh, I mean that could be a debate for a long time. You know? Yeah, totally. Um, what uh, really what it comes down to for manipulation for me, and I'm speaking for me <laughs> uh, in the research that I've done, is the uh, the time the force and the, uh, the uh, audible pop, the cavitation. And then maybe lastly, it's probably best and safest to stay in that mid range. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about this, Nate? I was in part of my question comes from, I was actually working with a client yesterday here in our office and we got on this topic because this particular individual has lower back pain. She also has neck pain and several other things that are going on, but specific to her, um, neck pain, I was doing a manipulation for what's what we call our CT junction or cervical thoracic junction. And this person has had chiropractic care in the past. And what I'm about to say is unique to this individual. This is not a generalization that I'm making. So please nobody misunderstand me. She had 
a poor experience in that setting, right? She had had her low back adjusted more forcefully than she was expecting at the time. And she left that appointment with more back pain than she went in with. And it continued to be that way. So she told me on her uh, first visit in here, you know, I had my back cracked before. I don't think I want to do that. I didn't have a good experience. So we were having a discussion about what you just said, how, hey, we're going to do what I would like to do is this mid-range manipulation to try and affect these joints. This is how we're going to do it. We're not going to be taking you to an end-range position. That calms down her nerves a lot as it relates to to what we were about to do. We did a cervical thoracic uh, manipulation. She had a very audible, without very, very much force needing to be applied for me, a very audible pop. She felt some sense of relief afterwards. She had improved range of motion, like what you just said. But one of the things I told her in our explanation of like, well, what is different between an adjustment compared to a manipulation, what we're going to do is I talked about this idea that I am not trying to work on a single specific joint. I am not trying to work on a single specific spinal segment or this facet joint. I'm working on this area, right? This is a general manipulation for this section. This isn't for like the L5 on L4 right-sided facet joint. And that's that's an explanation that I give clients a lot of times that like, that, hey, this isn't a very, very specific spot. This is a general thing for your lower lumbar spine, for your upper lumbar spine, for your thoracic spine that we're trying to accomplish. Um, have you found yourself in that conversation before? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and, and this is up for debate amongst, you know, fellowship trained manual therapists throughout the world. Mm. Uh, they, they talk about, you'll, you'll have some that are, that are, are very much about the, the very specific one part, one place, one pop kind yeah. of approach. The problem, and part part of the problem with that is is this. I mean, these studies have been done where they mount microphones all along the spine, mm. manipulate, and then they'll interview the the practitioner. Hey, where did that sound come from? They'll interview the patient. Hey, where did that sound come from? And and they'll ask the practitioner, what area were you targeting, right? And when then when they when they actually look at the microphones and where the sound came from. It's anywhere from one to five segments away from where the practitioner thought it was, from where the patient thought it was, mm. where the practitioner was targeting. And so, it, you know, what we think is happening may not be what is happening. And so for that reason, primarily when I go to perform a ma- manipulation on somebody, I'm going to um, try to do as much of a, a global type of treatment as yeah. I can. Yeah. And so let's say it is the lumbar spine, as you mentioned. Um, uh, let's say it's L3. Um, I'm going to try to target like, you know, T12 through S1 and get as much of the lumbar spine as I can. Yeah. Hopefully, and, you know, I know it's not a very scientific word to say hopefully, but hopefully address that area that is of concern for the patient. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of how I'd answer that. The, you know, I was taught early on to target very specific areas, but I've learned as time has gone on that uh, that you you can't really do that. <laughs> it's yeah. very difficult to, to do that and be accurate. Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then the other thing that I'll say, you know, and, and as I've said, I've I've 
trained practitioners all around the country. And you've got some, uh, some therapists that are great uh, manipulators. And you've got some others that unfortunately just aren't very, they need some more training, shall we yeah. say. Sure. You have the same thing in the chiropractic community and in the osteopathic doc community and the PAs and our nurse practitioners also that do this type of modality. Yeah. You have those that are very good practitioners and those that need just a little bit more work. Sure. Um, and so, you know, stay humble and, uh, and chase perfection, but be, be okay with being, you know, pretty good. <laughs> and, and that's what we're trying to do at physio room. We try to train everybody up. And I, I, I like where we're at. I've worked with each of our practitioners and been impressed with how, uh, first of all, how hard they work. And second of all, uh, their skills. And I, I, I am comfortable with each of them manipulating my spine, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say the same thing. I'm, uh, I, I don't have any hesitancy if I were to be in the room with any one of our providers. I'd let them go to town. So, um, but I, th I think you're totally right that, you know, and to me, it's not just a, it's not just a number of reps thing. Like, yes, the more reps I've gotten, the better I feel like I am, the more confident and successful I feel like I am at doing manipulations, doing dry needling, whatever that might be. But it's really those like intentional reps, right? I mean, if you're just screwing around and you're doing something, but you're not really being very intentional and purposeful of what you're doing and you're just hanging around with friends and cracking each other's back. That's not the same as like really trying to dial it in and set up the scenario so that And what I found is the setup makes such a big difference, right? How do you position the person? And there's so many different ways that you could go about manipulating a certain area, which is, which is what I find, um, you know, speaking of like chiropractic offices, for example, well, I could, probably refer a client to five different chiropractors, chiropractic offices. And, but that provider might provide a different adjustment based on, you know, based on their skills and their training. And I think, you know, what we learn and what you probably learn when you're um, having students in courses is, um, or providers in courses is maybe their background of what they've learned before, or the techniques that they've learned before are different from person to person or region to region. Um, I mean, heck, even some some states, uh, I still don't think even allow um, manipulations by certain providers and whatnot. So yeah, it's just a little bit different. And I find that, like you said, the more we practice it, we get those intentional reps, um, we get better at it and our skills change. I, I agree. Um, that's one of the reasons that we try to do the uh, in-services. We don't try, we do do. <laughs> we yeah, do right. In-services at uh, Physio Room and uh, train each other up very intentionally. Yeah. Uh, okay, another question for you. How about like from a downflow effect in terms of does doing a manipulation, say the spine, for example, um, does that provide any like downflow signaling effect to assist with getting muscle activation and getting recruitment of muscles, right? So like, how does that process work? And is it the same or different from the, you know, breaking the pain signal or getting the, the guarded up tense muscles around a joint to relax from doing a manipulation compared to, hey, we're trying to get them to be more active so that now we can go do exercise and strengthen them. Yeah, for sure. We have uh, enough studies out there to show that muscle recruitment following manipulation is improved. Um, and, and it is a very similar kind of uh, uh, mechanism or pathway as getting taut muscles to calm down. 
Um, so as far as, yeah, downway effects, um, spinal manipulation can be a great thing to get people ready for um, activity. Um, I, as far as like elite athletic performance, I'd have to say that's more of a kind of on a case by case basis. And that's where, you know, our, our athletes that we see at physio room, at, it may take us a couple of visits to determine how that person responds to manipulation. Yeah. Some, some athletes, they might be too, too loosey goosey afterwards, you know, and sure. so it's not necessarily worth the extra muscle recruitment that they would obtain if we're making their joints feel all too, you know, too wobbly. Um, for other athletes, it's a terrific way to prime them up for their performance. So that's something where I, I hesitate a little bit if, if somebody comes in and just says, hey, I need manipulation, get ready for my race tomorrow or whatever. I'm, I'm going to want to be able to dig a little bit deeper on that, you know? Yeah. And actually, since you laid out that scenario, um, what's like the time frame for some of these effects? And And this is sort of a two-part question. Two totally different questions, but so that I don't forget. What if we have somebody that is very stiff compared to somebody that is very mobile, right? And how, you know, what's manipulation like with those? And it's kind of interesting that we're having this discussion today because yesterday I recorded a podcast on that topic, being lacking range of motion compared to having way too much range of motion. But um, so what about that difference? And then how long do some of these effects last for? So like, say I have an athletic performance that I want to do and, and I potentially wanted a spinal manipulation, like what, what sort of time frame are we talking about that that's actually going to be able to help me? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll answer your question of what, how long do we expect these effects to last? So, uh, in general, and, uh, you know, it varies from person to person, but in general, I'm expecting, uh, the effects from manipulation, my first one to last for about a day. Some people last longer, some people last less. That's why I like to follow up with my patients the next day to see how they're feeling. Because uh, we want to um, see what kind of effect that we had. It does tend to be cumulative. So as we add more and more of these treatments, and that's where we get you know more like to six to 10 or six to 12 treatments, then those changes tend to be sustained. And we sustain them for days and then weeks and then and then months, right? Mm. Um, that's that's in general. Now, for somebody that is wanting it for uh, athletic performance, again, I'm speaking in generalities. I just got through telling you that it varies case to case, but totally. in general, most athletes, the day prior is probably pretty good, and uh, and then those effects, you know, last for about a day, and uh, now again, somebody that's been treated over a long period of time, it's probably going to last longer and mm. uh, they'll feel those effects longer. But in general, athletes day before is my, you know, professional experience. And if you have something different that I'm, I'm totally open to hearing about that. No, I like that because, you know, a lot of times we're not seeing somebody in the office the day after we just saw them, you know, we're, like you said, we're following up with them, but typically like in a treatment session, how I try to explain that to clients typically is, Hey, we're going to manipulate your back or we're going to manipulate your hip. Or I do typically the, the manual work, right. That type of stuff or dry needling or something else, yeah. typically prior to heading out in the gym or heading out in the clinic and doing more of the restore reloading 
movement, range of motion, strengthening type of activities. Uh, and that's one of my reasons for doing that. One, hopefully we've improved the quality and the feel of their movement. But two, you know, if there's some down signaling positive benefits on muscle recruitment, well, I want to take advantage of that. So let's not manipulate them five minutes before they walk out the door. Let's do it early on in the session so that we see those benefits in our in our treatment session. That's that's ma- mainly how I tend to think about it. But um, but as an athlete, too. Yeah, that was a just a curious question I had. How long does it last? Well, uh and and when I say the day before, I'm I'm probably thinking, hey, they're performing. They're going for a race, you know. Right. Um, when they're when they're in training, um, the day of is probably fine. And, yeah. Uh, and then just kind of see how they feel. Yeah, makes you sense. Asked, you asked about a uh, a hypermobile person versus a hypomobile person. Yeah. Um. Can should we manipulate that person that you know is stiffer versus that person that already maybe has too much range? They're you know, double jointed or whatever you want to call it. Um, recall that the first thing that we talked about that manipulation does is that it improves range of motion. So that can mean that we increase range of motion. So for that person that doesn't move very far or they're hypomobile, yeah, we should manipulate them to increase their range of motion. Mm-hmm. For that person that's already kind of, again, double jointed, loosey-goosey, Um, Can we manipulate that individual? And we may still want to, depending on what their quality of movement is like. So if their quality of movement is poor, even though they move plenty far, we might consider uh, manipulation so that kind of smooths them out. Yeah. A little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, you know, I think in that scenario, what we're oftentimes talking to the client about is the need for stability, the need for more motor control and manipulation can help us obtain that, help us with that motor recruitment to get more of that control, which might help their movement have a better quality. So no, I like that. Um, I feel like we're missing something, Nate. What else are we missing on the topic of, of manipulation? I mean, I feel, I feel like it is becoming more and more common in our profession that you could go to a number of different offices and at least somebody there is going to be somewhat skilled in this, in this, uh, skill set in the manual therapy side of things. But I know it's not 100% by any means that, um, you couldn't walk into any physical therapy clinic and every provider in the door is going to feel very confident about manipulations and use them when they're clinically appropriate all of the time. Um, so I do think from a, you know, a client or a patient perspective, because I think that's more so who's listening to this show, uh, potential clients or current clients, as opposed to uh, therapists, but, you know, you got to find the right person, you got to find the right provider, just like anything else, um, find the one that fits with you and your goals, um, and has an understanding of the, the sports or activities or things that you like to do. Um, Cause not everybody's going to have the exact same skill set, unfortunately, or fortunately, yeah. it's not, it's not an unfortunate thing. Yeah. 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 You know, hopefully if you've gone through physical therapy school, you've been exposed to at least some sort of manipulation. Yeah. But, uh, I, I have not seen, and, and, and like I said, we got exposed to it a lot in school and, yeah. uh, there were many parts of manipulation that I felt pretty confident in when I left school. But if, uh, if you're looking for 
um, an expert. It's going to have to be someone that has done some more education since school. That's just, totally. that's, that's how it's going to have to be. Um, that's, uh, it, it would be, I, I don't think I've met someone that is an expert manual therapist that left school and has just been practicing on their own and hasn't sought some type of additional education or mentorship. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the reasons. And, you know, I, I guess we're biased because this is a physio room podcast and we're physio room uh, practitioners, but uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that we pride ourselves in uh, promoting continued education amongst our, amongst our staff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, well, you know, not that we need to go around beating our own drum or tooting our own horn, but not all physical therapy practices have a podcast. Um, not all want to have a podcast. Sometimes this is, you know, this is hard to to talk about, you know, pushing the profession forward, pushing skills like this. And yeah, I mean, I think our team is trained up very well. Uh, I think they get reps in practice. I literally see the blocks on people's schedules to practice manipulations or what we sometimes call pop quizzes in, uh, in our office. Um, so like, I know it's happening cause I see them on there and, um, we schedule time when it fits with, with each other. Like I have a visit with one of our providers on Thursday of this week to look at stuff that's going on in my body. So we're trying to practice what we preach and continually update and learn. Um, it's not, it's not, always easy, right? Like it obviously takes time to do these things, but I think, uh, you know, every provider got into this to try and help clients. And if you just keep doing the same thing day after day, year after year, man, you fall behind really fast. If you're not out there seeking out the, the new skills and updating things as more and more information comes about. Absolutely agreed. I mean, what we put, uh, we started putting, uh, continuing education on, our training schedules, you know, we have our quarterly, quarterly uh, meetings. Yeah. Uh, we started putting that training on there and, and, you know, it's hard to fit everything that you need to fit into a Ooh. quarterly training meeting. And yeah. when you look at the schedule and you're like, everything we got to go over, like, ah, this, this manual therapy training, should we shorten it or should we? And I really like that uh, the, the leadership team at uh, physio room has kind of put the foot down and said, no, yeah. One, if anything, we're going to increase the time that we're yeah. doing with this, not decrease the time. So totally. Uh, yeah. Very much appreciate that. Awesome. Well, yeah. And I think it's been fun since we started hosting continuing education courses in our office now, which brings in a lot more providers that aren't even part of our team. And it brings in a lot more minds and a lot more question and answer time. And um, I think it's just going to help improve our skills uh, by having those in our office. Um, just, just from the purpose of like, we're constantly having this conversation. Um, but, uh, but man, this was fun. Um, now I want now I feel like I want to go next door here and talk to uh, talk to my team member Edward and say, Hey, can you, uh, can you manipulate my neck? Um, but uh, get some of these benefits, but for all you guys that tune in to listen, we're going to wrap this up, but Hopefully this, uh, this conversation maybe brought up some questions for you. You know, maybe you, maybe you're a client in our office, maybe you're a client somewhere else. And, um, and you're wondering, oh, I wonder why my provider has been manipulating me. What, what are the benefits? Maybe we haven't talked about that. Or maybe you're wondering why they haven't, or maybe you, um, 
you know, have had one type of experience, maybe you've had another, but if some questions come up from this conversation that we had, we would love to know what they are so we can dive in and potentially answer them for you, whether that's on an individual level and we send some messages back and forth, or it's a big overarching question and we record another episode on it to, to spread that out to everyone else too. So Nate, thank you for joining me, man. Thanks for spreading your knowledge on, uh, manipulations and, uh, this was fun. Hey, yeah, it was fun. If uh, anybody has further questions, let's let's hop on a phone call. The only problem you're going to have is getting me to shut up. So, <laughs> yeah, Nate's Nate's got uh, a lot of answers, and um, he and anyone else on our team, if we don't know the answer, we're going to tell you that we don't know, and we're going to help you try to figure it out. So, uh, we'll do the same thing on this show. Please let us know what questions you have, and if you've listened to this before, you know we have a goal. We're trying to get to 200 five-star reviews on this podcast. Uh, We just had another one added today. That was awesome. So um, please go listen, drop some reviews on there and ask us the question that you have. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of The Code. Thanks, guys. Thanks.